Awesome. You guys can have a seat. Uh, if you have your Bibles, take it and open it with me to Joshua, Joshua chapter 7. It's really great to see you guys this morning. And um, actually, we were going to start a new series today in 1 John, but um, in my studies, the Lord just kept bringing me back to Joshua 7 and 8 and reconfirming to me that uh, let's walk on into Joshua 7 and 8. So I believe that this is uh, very applicable to somebody this morning. I, I know it has been to me. So, and I believe that you're going to be very challenged and transformed by the Spirit of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we pray in Jesus' name that none of us would leave the same. We would all be transformed. Closer to you, surrendered to you, empowered by you, at peace in you, transformed by your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, when I was a kid, I loved the Rocky saga. Rocky 1, Rocky 2, Rocky 3, I think from there they got a little crazy with things, but, but I thought the first three were awesome. I mean, in Rocky 1 and 2, he did everything. He woke up at the crack of dawn, he drank raw eggs, he ran, he ran up steps, he was doing push-ups and crunches and this inspiring music behind him, and then, and, and then he won the title. And we find out in Rocky 3 that the reason that he won the title was because he had the eye of the tiger. Do you remember that phrase? He was focused. He was hungry. He was intense. Well, we also see that in Rocky 3, his, his new nemesis came along, clubber laying, and just pulverized him. Crushed him. And after being the heavyweight champion for three and a half years, he became a celebrity. He was wearing nice clothes. He lived in a mansion. He was driving expensive cars. He was living a luxurious life. He began taking it easy in training. He wasn't hungry for anything anymore. He was just sort of coasting. So Clubber Lang came along who was hungry and he was passionate. So Clubber Lang pulverized Rocky. We find out from Rocky's friend, Apollo Creed, that the reason you got pulverized is because you didn't have the eye of the tiger. Mickey, Rocky's trainer, said of Rocky, the worst thing happened to you that could happen to any fighter. You got civilized. You remember that line? We see that the Israelites, under the leadership of Joshua, and Joshua 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6, were hungry. They were passionate about God. They were consecrating themselves. They were partaking of mikvah by the Jordan River. They were walking by faith. They were fasting. They were praying. They were surrendered. They were passionate about God. They were holy. They were pure. They were circumcising themselves. They were partaking of Passover. They were crying out to God. They were focused on the Ark of the Covenant. And their enemies were terrified of them, and their enemies couldn't stand, and the walls of Jericho crushed down. But we see by Joshua chapter 7, they became civilized so quickly. And they lost that edge, they lost that hunger, and they became passive, they became casual. 
And in the same way, the worst thing that could happen to any of God's children, the worst thing that could happen to any follower of Jesus Christ is that we become civilized. We become passive. We become content in our relationship with Christ. So we're no longer repenting. We're no longer fasting. We're no longer hungry for the word. We're no longer clinging to his promises. We're no longer worshiping him as our lifeline, but instead we become casual. And Jesus is no longer our entire life. He's a compartmentalized portion of our life. And so they got pulverized. Let's pick up and read about it in Joshua chapter 7. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. We'll talk more about that. For Achan, whose name is Trouble, how would you like to be called Trouble? And he certainly brought trouble on Israel. The son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, and the tribe of Judah took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Verse 2. Well, actually, let's go down to verse 4. So about 3,000 men went up there from from the people of Israel. And they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Shebarim and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people of Israel melted and became as water. How tragic. We've been so inspired by the boldness of Joshua and Israel that their enemies were melting away before them, and they were so inspired, and they were walking with such consecration and passion and holiness and authority and power, and right here we see that a small army chased them down. Israel has their backs to the army. They're running from them. Thirty-six of their soldiers get killed running away in battle. What happened? How did they get complacent? How did they get passive? How did they lose the edge? How did they lose their passion? Well, we know that the promised land in Joshua is equivalent to all the spiritual blessings that are ours in Christ Jesus and the heavenly realms in Ephesians. The promised land that the Israelites are taking throughout the book of Joshua is equivalent to all the spiritual blessings that are available to us on a daily basis through faith in Christ outlined in the book of Ephesians. And as the land already belongs to Joshua, all of these spiritual blessings are already ours in Christ Jesus. And as God told Joshua, the land is yours, now go take it. You're not fighting for victory, you're fighting from a position of victory, but I only operate by faith, so I'm asking you to take a step of faith so I will have something to operate through so that you can have the land that I've already promised you. And in the same way in the book of Ephesians, all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly realm are ours, the peace, the joy, the abundant life, our identity in Christ, our anointing, it's all ours. But God only operates by faith, so he says, it's yours, go take it. You're not fighting for victory, you're fighting from a position of victory. Walk by faith, so I have something to operate through, so that you can receive all that I've promised you that's available to you in Christ. But we see that they stopped taking possession of that which was theirs. In Joshua 7, they lost their edge. Because they overlooked the necessity for three very critical things. 
And I believe on a daily basis, we don't walk in the fullness in Christ. We don't walk in our anointing, our peace, our joy, our vibrancy, our Christ-like love, our spiritual giftings, our authority in Christ, our freedom in Christ. But we walk defeated, dejected, despondent, in despair, in bondage. Because we also overlook the necessity of these three very critical ingredients to walk by faith. The first critical ingredient that Israel overlooked, perhaps you can relate to them because I believe we overlook this critical ingredient every single day. I believe this is why God said, you know what, don't go on with the new series, let's continue on into Joshua chapter 7 because this is going to help somebody, this is going to save somebody from a lot of pain, a lot of wasted time, uh, a lot of broken pieces in your life that doesn't have to be shattered. First, we overlook the necessity of God's counsel. We overlook the necessity of God's counsel. And the reason that Joshua and his leadership and the entire nation of Israel overlooked the necessity of first and foremost seeking God's counsel in this battle as they were going up against Ai is because it appeared that they had everything under their control. But that's an illusion. We never have anything under our control. And when we think that we have everything under our control, our situation is, as Jesus put it to the Pharisees, whitewashed tombs. It looks beautiful on the outside, but in reality, it's full of dead men's bones. They looked at Ai. It was a small, piddly little city-state with a weak army. They didn't hold any sort of comparison to the city-states that they've previously conquered. And they thought, we've got this one. This is child's play. We could take AI AI blindfolded. This, for us, is a slam dunk. And so they didn't inquire of the Lord, and in reality, God wasn't in it. God didn't tell them to take AI, because God wasn't going to be with them. But they didn't know that God was not with them, because Joshua fell to first and foremost seek God's counsel— But he didn't seek God's counsel because he thought it was a slam dunk. He thought it was in control. And how many of us every day think that we've got it under control, so first and foremost, we don't seek God's counsel? And the reason that they did not seek God's counsel, there were two overarching reasons in this passage, I believe. And the first overarching reason is because they were overconfident— in their own wisdom. They were overconfident in their own worldview, in their own visibility. Let's read about it, chapter 7. Let's just just look at verse 2 and 3. Verse 2. So Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-haven, east of Bethel, and he said to them, go out and spy the land. And the men went up and spied Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, Don't have all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and attack Ai. Don't make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. In their estimation, they had it all under control. In their estimation, they didn't have to seek God's counsel. The way they sized it up from their worldview, everything was going to be just fine. 
They overestimated their own wisdom, and they underestimated the necessity of God's eternal wisdom. I remember a few years before I bought my house out in Burleson, there was a house on Lake Worth that I really wanted. This house had a beautiful view of the lake with a deck out in front that was just awesome. Uh, sightings of deer were incredible, and I wanted this house. It looked so perfect. It looked beautiful. I, I thought the price was great. I had a contractor, a buddy of mine, come take a look at it first before I bought it to get his advice. And as soon as he walks in and looks around, the first thing he said to me was, Shane, you're going to want to run from this house. Don't walk. You're going to want to run from it. I said, but didn't you see the view and the, and the deck? And he had a hammer. And he pulls back some carpet a little bit. And he just barely taps it. And the whole concrete floor shatters like it was glass. It was a paper thin. And then he pulled back carpet in other areas. And it exposed that much of the house was built on a foundation of dirt. And the electrical and the plumbing and the roof were even a greater mess than the foundation. It truly would have been a nightmare for me. And I drove away from that, and I just thank God for his counsel. I thank God for his wisdom. I thank God for my contractor's wisdom. I thank God that he allowed me to see the reality beneath the dream. The nightmare beneath the dream. A year before we bought this building... It was a frustrating season of our church. We had a vibrant outreach that was going that was, that was uh, frustrating a lot of people, and my inbox and my emails were at an all-time high. Momentum was at an all-time low. My encouragement level was at an all-time low. I prayed, God, if you give me a green light, I am so out of here. I got a phone call one day from my sending church and said, hey, would you come, uh, you know, preach for us and let our elders talk to you about being our pastor? And I said, absolutely. <laughs> it was a big state-of-the-art theater on a, on a thousand-seat theater on a busy highway and uh, 1,500 to a couple thousand people. And I walked through there. I wanted to want it. But God's peace was not in it. And when I would spend time with this, with this outreach that was vibrant and growing with, with Hope Works back in our nomadic days, my heart was filled with peace and it was filled with joy. And I kept wanting to want that. But I had to follow the peace and I had to run away from where the peace was not. I fasted and prayed and sought God's counsel. And he guided me so clearly through peace and a lack of peace. One year later, God miraculously, sovereignly led HopeWorks to this location. One year after that, that church, for various reasons, ceased to exist. Oh, God has the world the, the, uh, under his authority, under his sovereign reign. We are so foolish when we negate his counsel. How many times do people say, Pastor Shane, I'm in a relationship. And I say, that's awesome. Do they love Jesus? And they say, I don't know. Like, do they go to church? I don't think so. I said, well, why are you in this relationship? Like, well, they're fine, Pastor. They, they look good to me. That's why. If God's not in it, you don't want to be in it. You want to run from it. A pastor whose sermons I enjoy listening to, his name's Jim Cimbala. 
he was telling me that, or he, he was preaching, and I, as I was listening to this sermon, I enjoy reading his books. He was saying that uh, about a year after he and his wife got married, they had a little baby, and her brother was dating this girl that they knew was not God's will for her because she was not a follower of Christ. She didn't know Jesus. She didn't love Jesus. They were unequally yoked. They knew it wasn't his will, but for God's will, but he continued to pursue this relationship. And all they could do, because he, he, he couldn't have ears to hear them, all they could do was pray for him. And when they were scheduled to be married in three weeks, they had them over to their house for dinner. And her brother was holding their little baby, Simba and his wife's baby, and just walking around the kitchen holding the baby. And then he went to give the baby to his girlfriend. And she goes, oh, get that thing away from me. I don't want that thing. And in a second, this guy was awakened and realized, we're unequally yoked. I'm not supposed to be in this relationship. So what is it for you? Is it a, is it a house? It is, is it a job? Is it a relationship? Is it a church? Is it a ministry? The worst thing that we could do is just do whatever we want to do. Because we've already made our minds up, so we fail to seek God's counsel, who has an eternal perspective on things. Because we want what we want. And our confidence is in our own wisdom. Are you on the brink of making a decision? Have you sincerely, passionately sought God's wisdom on the matter? And been willing to surrender your heart to his counsel. I was counseling somebody in relation to relationships just recently. And I said, I mean, I said, your heart's a mess. It's, it's divided into three or four different places. Because you want what you want. And your heart's a mess. It's divided in three or four different ways. And look at your life. It's a mess. Because you haven't been seeking God's counsel. You've been following your heart. And this person's circle of influence are not believers. And I said, if you ask any of your friends for advice, what they're going to tell you in this quagmire that you're in is to follow your heart. But the Bible tells us that our heart is deceitfully wicked. Who can know it? Don't follow your heart. It's absolutely deceiving. Repent of your heart and cry out for God's wisdom. He's the only one that's going to set you free. So we negate the necessity of God's counsel because, one, we are overconfident in our own wisdom. Secondly, we are overconfident in our own strength. Verse 4 and 5, they thought we got it. We don't need to pray. We don't need to, to have some sort of strategy. Like, do you remember in Jericho in the previous chapter, God gave them a specific strategy, a counterintuitive, crazy strategy to A, prepare for the battle, and B, to go into the battle itself when they circled the walls of Jericho. They didn't need to ask God's counsel if they should or not, so they didn't know God was not in it. They didn't care because their minds were made up. And B, they didn't think that they needed any sort of unique strategy to go into this building, to, to go into this battle, because these guys were just a few. Verse 4, so about 3,000 men went up there from the people, and they fled before the men of Ai, and the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men, and chased them before the gate as far as Shabiram, and struck them down in the descent, and the hearts of the people melted and became as water. You see, they knew 
that they could miraculously cross the Jordan River with God. They knew that they could take Jericho with God, but they forgot in a very short window of time that the qualifying factor to their success was with God. And they knew that they could crush any enemy with God, but they forgot that they couldn't even step on a grasshopper without God. And they went in self-assured without God, and they got crushed as a result. I'm reminded of the story of Muhammad Ali, Cassius Clay, the great fighter, who was in an airplane, and the stewardess said, Sir, you need to buckle your seatbelt. And he said, Superman doesn't need a seatbelt. And she said, Superman doesn't need an airplane either. (laughs) And in the same way, Israel got the Superman syndrome, and they forgot they needed God. May we be reminded of Zechariah 4, 6. It's not by power, it's not by might, but it's by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. In John chapter 15, verse 5, Jesus said, you can do nothing without me. Not less, nothing. Absolutely nothing. And in Psalm chapter 20, verse 7, some trust in chariots and others in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. The latter half of this verse was the secret to their success, but then they lost the edge when they began placing confidence in what everybody else places their confidence in, and that's human strength and human wisdom and human perspective. They entirely bypassed the necessity of God's counsel because they were overconfident in their own wisdom, they were overconfident in their own might, and they got crushed. Every morning, we need to pray, God, guide me. God, what is your will? God, which direction would you have me to go? God, are you in this? Because if you're not in it, I don't want to be part of it because it won't be blessed And if God closes a door, we have to praise Him. We can't fall in love with our decisions. We have to praise Him for it. Because He's guiding us, and He's protecting us, and He's delivering us, and He's setting us up for blessings. So one, they overlooked the necessity for seeking God's counsel. Two, they overlooked the necessity for pursuing personal purity. Joshua chapter 7, verse 1. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things, for Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zebdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. In other words, God told Joshua, and Joshua told the leadership and the people when they destroyed Jericho in the previous chapter that Luke preached about a few weeks ago, God said, don't plunder it. The people can't plunder it. This is consecrated. This is sacred. This is holy. This is mine. Devote this to me, to my treasury. The people won't partake of it. It's consecrated. Trust me on this. I was so, I was so proud of one of our youth who has been working so hard. She's been coming to church now for, you know, about seven years or so, and now she's got a great job in Victoria, and and well, she, she's working very hard, and she came up to me last Wednesday, and she said, hey, uh, Shane, I just wanted to tell you that I've started tithing. And I said, that's amazing. God is going to keep blessing your life more and more and more. This is one of our youth who is working so hard in a job, 
I mean, it's a fast food industry. She gets off work late past midnight, sometimes many hours past midnight, and she's tithing of her income. And God is going to bless her for it. You see, we read in the book of Malachi that if we take all 100%, God says it's cursed. Because the first 10% is devoted. It's mine, consecrated unto me through your tithes and offerings. And watch me bless the 90%. And as God begins blessing the 90%, then you'll continue to step out in faith and then give more and more. And say, God will bless more and more the 80% and 70% and 60% as you continue to grow in the gift of giving. But they did not have God's momentum on them because they were not obedient in this. And instead, they plundered Jericho, or one particular family did. Let's continue to read in verse 10. After they got beat up bad in Ai, Joshua, he's fasting, he's praying, he's crying out to God. And the Lord said to Joshua in verse 10, Get up! Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. And they've taken some of the devoted things, and they have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Verse 12. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before the enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they've become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Get up, consecrate yourself, and say to Israel, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow, for thus says the Lord God of Israel, there are devoted things in your midst. O Israel, you cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. Followers of Jesus Christ severely underestimate how devoted God is to our walking in holiness and purity. Holiness and purity in our hearts, holiness and purity in our affections, and our passion for His name, and our passion for His glory, holiness and purity in relation to our finances, holiness and purity in relation to, to sexual purity. And if we get outside of the bounds, then God's blessing is not on us. He loves us, yes, but his momentum is not on us. You say, but this is Old Testament, right? No, God is just as holy in the New Testament as he is in the Old Testament. And God is just as loving in the Old Testament as he is in the New Testament. God is God, and the central theme is Christ, and we're saved by Christ. And as a result, we begin walking out in the character of Christ through the Spirit within us. I'm reminded of Acts chapter 5 when Ananias and Sapphira in the early church lied about their offering. You can go back and read it. But as a result, when they lied about it in front of the assembly, Ananias dropped dead. Sapphira, his wife, came in, and Peter asked him, did such and such take place? And she lied just like her husband. And he said, the same feet that buried your husband are walking in now, and they're going to bury you also. And she immediately dropped dead as well. God is committed to our holiness. He's committed to our purity. He's not going to allow us to walk in his blessings if we're not walking out righteousness and holiness and purity. How could he? He loves us too much for this. And so, let's continue to read in verse 20 and 22. 
We're going to come back in a second to how they figured out who it was that partook of the devoted things, but let's pick up in verse 20. It ended up being Achan. His name means trouble, and he brought trouble on Israel. And Achan answered Joshua, Truly I have sinned against the Lord and the God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them. I wanted them, so I took them. And see, they are hidden in, 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 in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. This is what a lack of holiness is. This is what a lack of purity is. It's taking now, outside of God's timing, outside of God's will, outside of God's plan, what we want now with all sorts of consequences involved. Something, a blessing that God fully intended to give us later with only momentum and only blessing upon it. This reminds me of a lumberjack. On the first day of the job, he had an axe, and he chopped down 10 trees in, it in one day and, and it set a, a, a record. And so he, he got there earlier the next day, and he worked harder, and he worked later, and he chopped down two trees. And he didn't understand that, so he got there earlier the next day, worked harder, skipped lunch, worked later, and he barely got through one tree. And he was really confused about it. And then a, uh, an, an old-timer in the business asked him one question. Have you been sharpening your axe every morning? And he had this deer-in-the-headlight look as if that didn't dawn on him. And if we're lacking momentum, if we're lacking God's blessing, if we're lacking God's favor in our lives, we have to ask ourselves, are we sharpening the axe every morning? Are we walking in a spirit of righteousness, holiness, and purity? Or are we taking into ourselves devoted things now outside of God's word, outside of his will, outside of his watch care, outside of his timing, because we see it and we want it, and we're viewing this with our estimation and our intuition and our worldview. And God says, and Joshua, and his word is immutable and unchanging, this is why you keep stumbling. This is why you can't stand before your enemies. This is why you don't have divine momentum. And we learn from Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5, this is Old Testament and New Testament stuff. We cannot walk outside of God's will and watch care and wisdom and experience divine favor at our back. So... They overlooked the necessity of God's counsel. Secondly, they overlooked the necessity of pursuing personal purity. And thirdly, they overlooked the opportunity for repentance. Achan, in particular. Let's read about it in Joshua chapter 7, verse 14 through 21. Let's back up a little bit. When they're still trying to find out who it was who took the devoted things, nobody was stepping forward and volunteering the information. So here's what they did. Verse 14. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought near by your tribes, and the tribes that the Lord takes by lot shall come near by clans, and the clan the Lord takes shall come near by households, and the household that the Lord takes shall come near by man, and he who is taken with the devoted thing shall be burned with fire, he and all he has, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord, and because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel. Whoa, this is harsh, isn't it? In other words, all of Israel is to line up. 
And it's interesting also because God knows it's Achan. Why, why, why all of this? Why does Israel have to line up? And, and out of Israel, the, the lot falls on the tribe of Judah. And out of Judah, the lot falls on this particular family. And out of this family, the lot falls on this particular clan and the family. And then finally, the lot fell on Achan and this particular clan. Why all of this ceremony? I believe it's because God has given Achan an opportunity to repent. Because we also read that the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in love and kindness and mercy. And as all of Israel is lined up, this is an opportunity for Achan to step out of the assembly and to raise his hand or to fall on his knees and to say, it was me, I did it. And to seek the Lord's grace and mercy, but he didn't do it. And when the tribe of Judah was finally picked, I believe that Achan began feeling that sick, that, that sick sinking feeling in his stomach in his heart, and it began becoming difficult to swallow as he realized that the Lord chose his tribe. And he thought, well, maybe it was just a coincidence. But then as the Lord chose his family, I believe that his stomach began getting even more sick and his legs began getting weak. But he still had an opportunity to step forward. He still had an opportunity to repent, but he didn't do it. And then the Lord chose his family, and then the Lord chose his clan, and he still had an opportunity to come forward, but he didn't. And then the Lord chose Achan. And at that point, it was over. He bypassed the opportunity for repentance. God's kindness oftentimes leads us to repentance. But if we continue to ignore his kindness, then he begins to turn up the volume of discipline in our lives until finally we say, okay, I repent. I repent, Lord. And we come back to God, and God brings us to repentance because he wants to bless us. He wants to shine through us. He wants to be able to open doors for us and move mountains in our lives. Let's read about this again. Verse 15. And he who is taken with the devoted thing shall be burned with fire, he and all that he has, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord, and because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel. And as we continue to read, that's exactly what takes place. And the entire assembly stones Achan and his family and his little girls, and there's a big mound of stone. The Bible says there to this day, and it's called the Valley of Achor, which means trouble. And if you look at that, you might think, but that's so harsh. But that is the gospel. Because if we fast forward 2,000 years, we see that Israel surrounded a man who committed no wrong. Never in his entire life, not with a thought, not with a desire, not with a motive, not with an action, even behind closed doors, no secret sins. His name was Jesus. And he lived 33 years without ever sinning once in action, deed, or even motive. And he lived a completely sinless life on our behalf so that his righteousness would count on our behalf when we trust Christ as our Lord and Savior. But the Bible says, just like Achan experienced, that the consequence of sin is death. But God loves us so much that he didn't want us to pay the price of that sin. So he sent his only son, Jesus, to live this perfect, sinless life for 33 years. 
And then as Israel and the leadership and the Romans gathered around Jesus and they didn't throw stones at them and burn them, just the opposite. Instead of that, they, as Daniel said earlier, they drove spikes through his hands and feet and his body convulsed on the cross and they spit upon him and they ridiculed him and then he cried out, it is finished. In other words, I've paid for your sins. So God is just as holy in the New Testament as he is in the Old Testament. But Jesus pays for everybody's sins in the Old and New Testament through Christ on the cross. So that when we turn to Christ, we receive forgiveness, past, present, and future. And we're clothed with his very righteousness. And we're given his spirit that allows us to follow Christ and to walk after Christ. And then finally... God, through his mercy and God, through his grace, gave the nation of Israel a new day to fight. And we pick up in, um, in, in Joshua chapter 8, and we see that now they've got the edge back. Now they've got the eye back. They are prayerful. They are fasting. They are consecrated. They are focused on the Lord. They are walking in holiness. They are walking in purity. They are praying. God gave them his wisdom. God gave them his strategy. And once again, it was a unique strategy. Uh, Half the fighting army went behind the city of Ai, and the other half went in front, and Ai didn't know about the ambush behind them. And so the army went in front of the city, and the men from Ai came out as before when they destroyed Israel before and, they, and, and Joshua and the Israelites were pretending like they were running as they did before so they turned their back to Ai and started running so all the men of Ai were emboldened and they chased out after Joshua and the Israelites and then when they did that every man left Ai then the ambush secretly camping out behind Ai raided the city they began plundering it they put it to flames and then when the men of Ai looked back and saw the smoke they realized that there was an ambush they were tricked some of them went back to fight some of them tried to turn around but now Joshua and these guys turn around and they fight and they crush the fighting men of Ai and God gave them a strategy he was with them he blessed them because they were once again walking in fellowship with him they were once again walking in righteousness they were once again walking in obedience And perhaps you've been beat up a few times this week. This is a new day to fight. It's a new day. God's mercy and grace are made new every morning. But let's not fight as we have fought this past week, half-heartedly, without the edge, without the hunger for our relationship with Christ, without the desperation for his word, without worship of God being our lifeline. Let's not fight the way we've been fighting so that we've been walking in defeat day after day. It's a new day so we can wake up, our hearts can awaken, we can seek God, we pray for his counsel, we walk in righteousness, we obey his word, we believe his promises, we walk in the spirit of worship, and when something comes against us that we didn't plan, we don't freak out about it as the world who has no hope. Instead, we embrace it as an opportunity to trust because even today, God only funnels his power, his strength through our lives when we give him a window through which to pour it through and that window is faith, it's trust. So we've got a new day to fight. Let's fight it like Joshua and the Israelites in Joshua chapter 8. 
Not Joshua chapter 7. Let's be consecrated. Let's walk in fellowship with the Lord. Would you stand with me, please? Father, we thank you for the opportunity to seek you again. Your word says your mercies are made new every morning. Lord, thank you for this promise of grace. We stand upon it. We embrace it. And we'll make the most of it. You've been so gracious to us in the past as we've not walked in fellowship with you and as we've not sought your counsel and as we've gone our own way and we've called good what you call bad and we call glorious what you call uh, deplorable and, and we call deplorable what you call beautiful because you, everything is the opposite in our world as far as you're concerned. Uh, you say that the first will be last, the least is the greatest of all. You say that, that comfort is, is not the goal. You say your character is the goal and being dependent upon you, not ourselves. And We pray that we wouldn't walk so confidently in our own perspective so that we bypass seeking your counsel for what seems to be small decisions and especially big decisions. But Joshua and the children of Israel thought that the battle of Ai was a small decision, and they paid a price. And Lord, we pray that we wouldn't make that mistake on a daily basis. We would constantly seek your will and seek your wisdom and surrender our emotions as we line every decision up to the scrutiny and the filter of your word and godly counsel. So that you can bless us and you can shine through us. And if anybody in our, in our midst, Lord, if anybody in our midst is secretly hiding something that's consecrated, that should be devoted to you, whether it's their finances or whether it's their sexual purity or whether it's some sin pattern, we pray in Jesus' name for a spirit of repentance so that everybody would be shaken free from the bondage of this world and they could walk in your authority. And we pray that we would not be a people who have half hearts or compartmentalize you at home or on Sunday morning, but we would love you and honor you and be devoted to you every morning and throughout every day. We will seek you in the morning and walk with you throughout the day. And we will remain dependent upon you because there's no battle in our life that we can, that we can take as a slam dunk without you. We need you for the big battles and we need you for the small battles because we can do nothing without you. So we will not negate seeking your counsel and we will walk in holiness. And we thank you for the opportunity for repentance because your mercies are new every single morning and today is a new day. And I pray in Jesus' name that my friends here would live victorious this week, that they would walk in freedom this week. And as a result, they would, as Joshua and the Israelites inherited the land, that in accordance with Ephesians, my friends here would inherit every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. All of your peace, all of your joy, all of your freedom, all of your anointing, all of your wisdom, all of your boldness, all of your authority. Lord, they would just walk in, in Jesus' name.
And so, guys, let's close with worship and um, spend some time in worship. Raise your hands high. Surrender your life to the Lord. Feel free to use this, alt, this, this stage as an altar to consecrate your heart and your mind, your budget, everything about your life to the Lord. Nothing is too great and no detail is too small. God wants our whole heart and our whole mind. So let's consecrate ourselves to him.